Uh, So the reading is uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And it's on page 1003 of the church Bibles. And I think there's people, if you need a Bible, wandering around, ready to give you one. So Mark chapter 2, starting from verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how we need to hear from you this morning. Above all the voices that clamor in our ears and in our minds and hearts all week long, we need to hear the still small voice of your Holy Spirit speaking to us through your word the living word that is powerful and active and can save. So we pray, speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be just preaching on this passage now for a few minutes. Uh, Some of you know I've been in America for the last nine or ten days on a study retreat with a group of old pastors and a professor and had the most wonderful time. It was very good for my soul I'm very bad for my waistline. A few years ago, there was a great disaster at sea. A tourist boat was loaded with cars and families of holidaymakers, but the doors on the boat had not been shut properly. And as it set out, water began to pour in. And the boat began to sink, and panic ensued. People screamed in terror as a happy atmosphere turned into a nightmare. All at once, one man, who was not a member of the crew, took charge. In a clear voice, he gave instructions, telling people what to do. Everybody realized that at least someone was in charge. Many people reached the lifeboats because of this man, who otherwise would have died. And then he made his way down to the people trapped in the hold. This is a true story. And there he formed a human bridge. He was 
tall man, about six foot three, stretched his body across a flooded chasm in the darkened hull and helped 20 more people cross to safety. When the nightmare was over, they discovered that the man himself had drowned. He literally given his life using the authority that he had assumed. He gave his life using the authority that he had assumed to save others. That authority by which many had been saved. Now that is a picture of Jesus Christ. The one who gave his, his life using the authority that he had to save many. In Mark's gospel, we're on this journey through Mark. We're meeting Jesus the person who turned the world upside down. The opening chapters of Mark's Gospel are a bit like a photo album. A friend here at the church just lent us a photo album of our wedding anniversary. It was wonderful to see all those pictures from uh, 20-odd years ago, although terrifying to see how much we'd aged. We see snapshots of Jesus' life here in this photo album, but they're arranged in careful order. The sequencing is very careful because it's building a picture of Jesus. What do we see? Immense authority used to serve others. We saw in the opening section about how majestic Jesus is. He, things are said about him that can only be said about the living God. He, he's on a mission to save the world, and he does so with great humility. We've seen that he's a king, and we've heard the summons of the king. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, turn around, and believe the good news. That's his summons. The authority of the king, authority over the, the spiritual world, the intellectual world, the world of health, and the call of the king. Come, follow me. A call of absolute authority to those who hear it. And last week we saw that Jesus Christ has the power to make us clean. He had the power to, to make the most unclean person in that culture, a leper, clean and absolutely pure. And this week, we now see that Jesus has the authority to forgive our sins. The authority to forgive our sins. And we're going to unpack that in this story, Mark chapter 2. If you've closed your Bible, do, do open it again at page 1003. We'll be in this story for the next 25, 30 minutes. Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man, Mark 2. This isn't just a story of a miraculous healing. Although it is that, it is much deeper because something is being shown us here about what is the most deeply wrong with our lives and about who has the authority to resolve it. Now, there are three twists in this story, and you're going to think that this sounds like a, a terrible dad joke. And maybe it does sound like that. The, the three twists are the roof, the reply, and the religious experts. The roof, the reply, and the religious experts. Firstly, the roof, verses 1 to 4. A few days later, Jesus again entered Capernaum, People heard that he'd come home. They gathered in such large numbers. There was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. And then some men come, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four good friends. And what do they do? Verse 4. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. And then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Can you imagine something like this happening? It's like... A, you know, an internet phenomenon, you know, when things go viral. The word is out. Jesus, this guy who they all thought was just a carpenter's son, is doing amazing things. And of course, everybody's hearing about it, and word is going around like wildfire. 
And now he comes back to his hometown, his home area, and everybody's pressing in, and the room is packed. There is no social distancing. And they're packed in, and there's so many. They're outside, they're packed in, and they're just trying to see him or hear, you know, and, and it's all around, and, and there's no way around. But these were flat roof houses, and four enterprising men think, we are going to get our friend to see him no matter what. So what's the way we're going to do it? We go up the side, onto the top, carrying our friend on this stretcher, and then we're going to dig through the roof. Now, some people, some scholars actually wonder if this was Jesus' own house. Or if not, it certainly is his hometown. It's, it could be the house of one of his friends. Can you imagine that? We noticed when we moved to Chesington last summer how many people are having roof conversions, loft conversions, new extensions. I've never seen so many uh, conversions being done in, in a single town. And it turns out that a new roof costs about £10,000. Can you imagine, you've just, you've just paid for your new roof and you probably extended your mortgage to do it or saved up. And here we are, you know, some friends come and they, they smash the tiles and they break through the, the uh, beams and they, they smash a hole right in your, your 10,000 pound roof. And look at Jesus' response to this reckless property damage. Verse 5, Since, uh, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, you need to pay for the roof. No, he didn't say that. He doesn't give a monkeys about the roof. Son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> so notice very, very carefully when he saw their faith. So Jesus responds to faith. So what do we learn about faith here? Faith is active. It's not passive. It is not the passive spectating of the crowds, but the active trusting risk that the men take, who get on the roof and dig through, that is what Jesus is most impressed by. He sees their faith. So we need to understand faith in Bible terms, not in the terms of our culture that we often are influenced by. Let me just think about faith for a moment. You could say, I believe in Henry VIII. I believe in Henry VIII. And you mean it with all your heart that you, you genuinely do believe that Henry VIII did exist, that he was a real historical person, that he did things, that he actually uh, took Hampton Court Palace off Cardinal Wolsey, and you can go and visit it to this day. You can believe in Henry VIII, and it will make not a jot of difference to your life. That kind of believing. All it is is mental assent to data from the past. That's believing, but it's not faith. That's not faith. On my recent journey, I had to go on four airplanes, London to JFK, JFK to Savannah, and then the trip back. And every time, I used to be a very nervous flyer. It struck me, here we are on the, on the, uh, the international route, hundreds of people trusting our lives into the hands of one one or maybe two people, if you think about it. We're all sitting there getting served our drinks and got our headphones in, watching a little screen, watching a movie, and yet one person is actually responsible for our life and death at that moment for several hours. So faith is more like saying, I believe this pilot is competent to fly this plane. 
and therefore I will put my life in his or her hands. That is to say, faith is dependence. If you have faith, you are depending on somebody else. Faith is confidence. I know he or she can be trusted with my life. Faith is trust. I can trust them with everything. You see how different faith is from just believing some facts? Yeah? Is anyone with me still? (laughs) A few people are. Faith is dependence. Faith is confidence. Faith is trust. So let me ask you, first point from the roof, friends, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? You have faith in him. I want to ask specifically, I want JF members, YPF members, young people, I want to talk to you for a moment here specifically. You don't have to speak out loud, don't worry. Do you actually have faith in Jesus? Confidence in him? Trust in him? You depend on him? Not just do you believe facts about him, but is your life based on him? This is a very, very big distinction. I struggled with it for years as a young person. So I was from a Christian family. I'd been taught the Bible. I knew lots about the Bible. I knew lots of facts. I didn't have faith. I wasn't really depending on Jesus. You have to break through. Your parents' faith isn't enough. Your parents' faith stops with them, actually. You have to choose what to do with the information that's been given to you. Have you heard the voice of Jesus Christ? Have you heard his knock on your heart saying, I want to come in and be Lord and Savior of you? You have to respond to that, friends, and then begin to live in the light of it. Not just bubbling around in the church world. That's not enough. It could be very dangerous for you to live in the church family, actually, and think you're okay. But really, you're not. You're just as far away from Jesus as the person who's never heard of Jesus. In some ways, you could be worse off because you're so immune from it. It's like you had a vaccination against Jesus. (laughs) We need active faith. Do you have real faith? These men break through to Jesus. They will not be stopped because they have faith. They are not contented to wait outside. Oh, maybe we'll see him, maybe we won't. No, no, no. They are determined to get through. The paralyzed man finds a way to get to see Jesus because he knows he needs rescue. Now, he knew he needed rescue from his disability. He couldn't move, therefore he can't work, and there's no social security in that culture. But when he looks in Jesus' eyes, he gets a surprising reply. A surprising reply because the voice of Jesus says something to him, not what he expected, and actually more than he expected and more than he needed. Because when we, you know, we think we're seeking, and then we, when we do meet God, we find that God has been seeking us all along. Have you experienced that? You thought you were seeking, but then you found that God was the great seeker all along. Many people think that they cannot be forgiven. They know their own secrets. They know their past. They know their heart. They know their addictions. They know their sins. They think that God, if he is distant and uncaring, and if he did know about them, he would not want anything to do with them. But true faith will not stop there. This story is a picture of somebody breaking through and reaching out for God. So let me implore you today, don't stay on the edge of the crowd. Get on the roof, break through, dig through to meet Jesus Christ.
have you dug through? It's the first surprising thing, the roof. Second surprising thing is the reply. The reply, look at uh, verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, why on earth does he say that? Isn't it strange? With respect, Lord, the man's paralyzed. He can't even stand up. They had to lower him down on the stretcher. Lord, with respect, could you get your priorities right? What's all this about sins? He needs, he needs his health. He needs to be able to walk. But Jesus has got his priorities right. We're the ones that have got them wrong. Jesus is using this situation to make a very important teaching point to us. The point, by the way, is not that if you're sick or disabled or physically impaired in some way, that it must be you sinned and caused it. That is not the point being made here. The Bible consistently teaches against that. One of the most uh, influential examples of that is, is a man called Job. Job suffered incredible, ter- terrible things in his life. His property was burned down and his uh, stuff was taken from him and he had terrible sores all over his body and he was sitting on the ruins of his house scraping his sores and his three friends came, so-called friends, probably Facebook friends. <laughs> they came and they start saying, well, Job, you know, you must have done something wrong. You know, it, you must deserve it. Can you think of anything that you might have done that God would be punishing you for? And Job's going, I, 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 no, actually, no, I've been really faithful. And they go, well, come on, Job. We know better than that. Surely there's a sort of one-to-one equation in the world. You know, anything bad happens for a reason. God is holy, therefore God must always be punishing you. And Job completely refutes that. And the Bible agrees with him. Jesus Christ agrees with him. John chapter 9, some people came uh, with a, a, a man who was blind from birth. So he'd never been able to see. He'd, he'd been blind from birth, visually impaired from birth. And his disciples ask him this very question. They say to Jesus, teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents? Because he's blind from birth. Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God could be revealed in his life. And then he gave him his sight back. So it's not a one-to-one equation. But, you know, there are sins in life that are related to sin, aren't there? And the Bible is equally clear on that too. There are some addictions or behaviors that will lead to sickness. Sexually transmitted diseases are an obvious example. Indirectly, a life that is lived without God, a life that is lived without God will suffer the effects, although they may be subtle. People who live with a guilty conscience for years, you know it can affect their body, affect their health. The mind and the body are so closely linked, we don't understand it fully. Anger can destroy your body. Guilt, shame, fear. They all cause physical problems. We don't fully understand it. And the Bible teaches that ultimately, and we're talking in the global picture, ultimately the reason the human race gets sick and dies is because of sin. Because sin came into the world. So healing is linked to forgiveness, but there isn't a one-to-one correlation. Now the point that Jesus is making here is something is this. There is something in our lives that is even more important and even more vital than your physical health and strength. There's something even more important than that. 
That's why he sees the paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven. He's making a point. And here it is. The most important problem we have is that we're not right with God because of our sins. And our most important need is forgiveness. It's very simple. We teach the young people a little uh, ditty about sin. What is it? Shove off God. I'm in charge. No to your rule. And that's what we've all done. Every single man, woman, and child ever born has said, shove off God. I'm in charge. No to your rule. And we do that usually in one of two ways. We do it by being very, very bad, or we do it by being very, very good. And again, I speak to those of you from a Christian background. You can have enough of Jesus in your life that you stay well away from him. That's actually saying shove off God. I'm in charge. I'll be my own Lord and Savior. It's just as bad as the people who run away and break all God's rules. Our most significant problem, friends, is our sin. We have to see that if we're going to get a right perspective and actually if we're going to flourish. So if we, one of the implications then is if we do struggle with disability or physical sickness or illness in some way, and we all do sooner or later, the most important outcome would be what? Not immediate deliverance from illness, but being made right with God. Having the healing of forgiveness. That's the main healing we need. And that flies in the face of everything that our culture believes in, doesn't it? Our culture says that the most important thing is that you have a healthy and, and prosperous life right now. And therefore, in, in our culture, again, the biggest argument against the existence of God is what? Suffering. People always play this trump card. Oh, how could a good God allow suffering? Think about it. The Bible says suffering is an opportunity to get the most important thing clear. I need to be right with God. It's my biggest problem. So in a strange way, suffering can be a gift. C.S. Lewis, professor of literature at uh, Cambridge University, wrote this in The Problem of Pain. We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities. And anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they didn't know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience. But he shouts in our pain. Suffering is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, if you are undergoing suffering at the moment, what is God shouting to you? What is he communicating to you? Are you using the opportunity to reach out to the one who knows all things? Or is your suffering driving you further away from the only source of life. Has God ever shouted at you through your pain, friends? Has he got your attention? 
Have we really understood that our greatest problem is our sin and our greatest need is forgiveness, the healing of forgiveness? Jesus certainly got everyone's attention with that reply, didn't he? Everyone's listening now. But there's one group who are really listening, and that's the third twist in the tale, and that is the religious experts. We've got the roof, the reply, finally the religious experts. Have a look at verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, they're reasoning, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, who are these teachers of the law? They're going to crop up again throughout Mark. What we have here, actually, is the first of five um, episodes from this point on where we see people opposing Jesus. The first chapter has all been about the positives. Now we get the negatives because people start to oppose Jesus. And the first group that we see opposing him are these teachers of the law who are um, religious experts. They are therefore an authority in a culture that has the highest... The highest law in the Jewish culture is God's law. That's what they want to live their their life by. Even if they're under the authority of Rome, the Jews still want to live by God's law, the Torah. So an expert in that is is an authoritative person in their culture. They teach the law. They explain God's will to God's people. So these are very important people here. And they're very powerful. And by chapter 3, verse 6, spoiler alert, they're all planning how to kill Jesus. It's that early. And here they are, they're sitting there and they're saying, hold on a minute, why does this fellow talk like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now why, why do they say that? Well, ex- explicitly there are passages in the Old Testament that say God forgives sins and there is no other. Let me just give you a couple of those. Exodus chapter 34, when the people were led out of, of Egypt and God gives them his, his teaching and instruction for life, his law. God says this, revealing who he is. He says he's compassionate and gracious, God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, uh, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God says he can forgive our wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Another example from the New Exodus, Isaiah Chapter 43, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. God claims the authority to do that. Now let me just, let's just unpack this for a moment. How could God forgive our sins rebellion, wickedness, transgressions. How does that work? If you think about this, when somebody sins against you, they have cost you something. So if somebody steals from you, somebody steals your purse, or breaks your phone, or takes your car, or sins against you in some more personal way, you have two choices. You can either make them pay for it or forgive them, right? You can do that because they sinned against you. And forgiveness means that you're going to pay. Somebody always has to pay. 
So if somebody steals my uh, computer and smashes it or, or flogs it or whatever, they owe me about £2,000. If I forgive them, I still have to pay for the computer, right? But I can do that because they sinned against me. Now, of course, this does work even more deeply on the emotional level if someone hurts you, betrays you, lets you down. You can make them pay for it emotionally, or you can forgive it by absorbing the pain in yourself. Now, notice, we can only forgive a debt if it is against us or if we're willing to pay the debt to someone else. If somebody steals John Atkirst's car, I can't say, I forgive you, you know, you go free, but John still has to pay. <laughs> that doesn't work, does it? John's not going to thank me for that. So what is it Jesus implying when he says, your sins are forgiven? And that means all the sins the man had ever committed in his entire life. Jesus is implying that all the sins are really against him. And that he can pay the debt. And there's only one being of whom it can be said that sins are against him, the creator, because he made us and we belong to him. We're all his possessions. And any sin against the creator's possessions and creation is an offense against him. This is really vividly illustrated in the Old Testament. King David, the great King David, a man who says he's, he's, he's a man after God's own heart, but he, he did the most horrendous thing. He saw a beautiful woman bathing. He was on the roof of his palace looking down. He saw this woman and he just desired her. He lusted after her and he, he sent to find out about her. And they discovered that she was the wife of one of his best soldiers, a guy called Uriah. And so he sends for her because Uriah's out of town. Uriah was out fighting a war for David. And he sends for her and he, he has some, he, some drinks. He gets her drunk. He sleeps with her. And lo and behold, Bathsheba falls pregnant by David while husband is away fighting the war. So what did David do? He arranged a cover-up. He arranged for his commander to put Uriah in the, the heat of the battle and made sure that he died there. I mean, it was just a horrendous abuse of power on every level. And after all of this, this sin against the woman, this sin against the husband, this sin against the position of authority that he had as king. All of this, David was confronted with it and he wrote a psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, most powerful poem uh, of a man absolutely caught and, 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 uh, and repenting and pouring it out before God. But he says this in that psalm, very, very striking, to God against you, you only have I sinned. Against you, Lord, you only have I sinned. What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? David realized there that the biggest sins are always against God, who is our maker. So these teachers have got their theology right in Mark chapter 2, by the way. They know that only God has the right to forgive, ultimately. They're absolutely right about one thing. They're right that Jesus is making an audacious claim to deity. Jesus is now saying he can do something that only the creator can do. He asserts his authority to forgive us for everything we've ever done. And so they concluded 
he must be blaspheming. They had good theology, but they had bad Christology. Christology is the knowledge of Jesus. Look back at Mark chapter 2, will you? Pick up from verse 6, page 1003. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. Or get up, take up your mat. Now, as they, as they do, scholars have debated this. I think the conclusion is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can see whether, whether it's true or not. It's easy to say it. But it's not easy to say, get up, take up your mat and walk, because at that point, the chips are on the table, aren't they? Everybody will see whether or not the man can, will get up, whether Jesus really has the power to do it. So it's easier to say that. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven. So Jesus does the miracle in order to back up his authority to forgive sins as well. His proof of authority is he simply commands a paralyzed man to take up his mat and walk, and he does it right in front of everyone. There's no need for um, hours of prayer. There's no need for uh, laying on hands. There's no need for loads of people to gather around. He just speaks. Up he gets. Easy. What is the value of this story to you and me? What we need to see, friends, is that this paralyzed man is a picture of all of us spiritually. The paralytic is imprisoned by his paralysis. He's confined to bed, unable to help himself. He needs to be rescued. And so do we. According to the Bible, that is all of us spiritually. Last week we thought about a leper unclean. Now we think about a paralyzed man unable, paralyzed by our sins, defiled by our impurity. Have you ever realized that's true of you? Because it is the first step on the road to rescue. According to the Bible, you and I are not a blank slate, kind of neutral, with the power of free choice to just choose good or ill according to us. According to the Bible, we are not basically good. We're basically twisted. We are imprisoned by our sins. This man is a picture of us. And you know what else this shows us? Jesus is absolutely wonderful. He's so quick to forgive. He's so kind, so compassionate. He sees through to the deepest need and wants to meet it right away. Jesus doesn't make the man jump through loads of hoops first as if he could. He's so quick, he comes to him, meets his need. But look, Jesus is only available to people who know that they are moral failures and are willing to accept that. Do you really know that? You're a moral failure, either because you were very, very bad or because you've been very, very good. All through Mark's gospel, we see 
It's possible to get excited about Jesus and very interested in Jesus and yet miss the reality of who he is. Lots of people gathered, crowds hunted him down. They wanted things from him. They want emotional things, physical things. They get excited. They're amazed and astonished. They love being around Jesus. But in the end, you know, they were not really changed. They did not have a dependent faith, a trusting faith, a confident faith. They didn't truly enter his kingdom. At the end of this story, you know, there's hundreds and thousands of people who come into contact with Jesus one way or another. Hundreds and thousands. Remember, we're going to find times where Jesus fed thousands of people. So many people were pursuing. He had to get away to stop from causing chaos. How many people were left after it had all died down? 120. (laughs) That's all that was left by the beginning of the book of Acts. Because most of the people never really put their faith in him. So you see, there's a huge difference, friends, to, to, a huge difference between being in the crowd and being a disciple. We've got a crowd here. I don't know how many people are here with the kids, maybe 300. There's quite a crowd, isn't there? There's a big difference between just being here in the crowd and actually being a disciple, one who bets their life on Jesus Where are you today? Will you come in? The difference is the true followers have come to the point where they see that they are a sinner needing pardon. They realize that I can't help myself, I need him, I'm paralyzed. Have you seen it? Then come to him. Break through. Today. Right now, this this morning. And let me just say as well, and this is a bit sharp, if you don't realize that you are a moral failure, then you are not a Christian. I'm not going to apologize for that. If you don't realize you're a moral failure, you you just cannot be a Christian in any true sense. So I have to ask you in the name of Jesus to reconsider and honestly look at your life. To look again at your condition. To come to come before him perhaps for the first time in humility. To admit, yes, I am a moral failure and only you, Lord, can turn my life around. Be like the leper, cleanse me. Be like the men who break through, heal me. Let me also add a word to those of you here. Disciples, Christians, do you take Jesus at his word? If so, then you will see now that Jesus has forgiven all of your sins by his death on the cross. So they don't, they don't influence you anymore. They are dead to you. Those sins are done. You are not carrying the burden of your sin anymore. Is there something that you feel you've done and you could never forgive yourself for? Drop it now. Put it by the cross. Let the burden roll away. New Testament says, don't be like the pig or the dog. The pig having been washed, goes back to the mud, to the filth. And the dog, having been sick, returns to its vomit. It's horrible, isn't it? Disgusting picture. That's what the New Testament says, is how disgusting it is for a new, washed, cleansed Christian to go back to their sins. You've been cleansed from all that. Leave it behind. 
But what this means is that all the really big things in our lives have already been taken care of. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. That means because of Jesus, there is not a cloud in the sky between your relationship and God. He looks upon you with the perfection that Jesus had. So that means that all will be well and all manner of things will be well. What can happen to us if we really get hold of this perspective and it gets hold of us? Let me tell you, finish with a true story. Two brothers, young men, Chinese brothers, living in San Francisco in the early 1900s. They were, looked very alike. They were almost identical, but they weren't twins. The older brother was very hardworking, responsible, but the younger brother was rebellious and he got on the wrong side of the law often. The younger brother then got addicted to gambling. And one night he, he was in a card game and he got in a fight and he accidentally killed a man. He ran away. He ran to his house and he got out of his bloody clothes and he tried to hide them. And then he ran out of town. He escaped and went away. But too many people had identified him and they knew who he was and would report on him. And the older brother learned about all this and he knew what would happen. The police would come looking for his brother and his brother would be caught and executed. So he went to the house and he found the bloodstained clothes and he put them on. And he waited. And when the police came, they arrested him. Of course, he was a bit older, but he was very similar in size and height and looks. And being the brother, he looked just like him. And he was tried, found guilty, and executed for the crime. Sometime later, the younger brother returned to town. He learned what had happened. He was shaken to the core. He went to the police and he confessed. And do you know what they said? We can't execute two people for the same crime. You are free to go. The penalty has been paid. That is what Jesus has done for you and me. The substitute who took our place. Now, how do you think it might have changed the brother's life? I think it would have made him a person characterized by gratitude. So thankful. A person of humility. A humble life lived in gratitude for another one who paid my price. And surely a person whose old habits were put aside. What a price was paid to set me free. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are so blinded by this world around and we so need to hear from you the clarity of your voice, the piercing look of your eyes, and hear your voice say to us, your sins are forgiven. And then to stand up and walk and live a new life in the full light of that. Help us to do that and we pray that you would bring one person home to you in this church this morning. For we ask it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing a song called appropriately, Come Ye Sinners. So we'll stand when the musicians...
begin. Thank you.